0: God is the truth behind all truth, and and I'm a realist. I think that, that, that there's a truth to the world, and there's a truth to our speech when it lines up with the world, and that by attending to the world, you can get some insight into that.
1: Hello, and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. In this episode, we continue our science and religion series, interviewing Dr. Andrew Davison, the Starbridge Associate Professor in Theology and the Natural Sciences at Cambridge University. Dr. Davison has two PhDs, one in theology from Cambridge and one in biochemistry from Oxford. And he believes that the best way for Christians to engage with science is from a Christian Platonist perspective. What is a Christian Platonist perspective? And how does it affect the way we think about science? Answering these two questions is what this whole episode is about. I hope you enjoy it.
2: I was wondering if you could explain to the layperson what is Christian Platonism um, and why do you personally find it compelling?
0: Well, Christianity has made such productive use of ideas and categories from the broad Platonic tradition that it's quite difficult really to disentangle them. It's quite difficult to point to a non-Platonic Christianity, perhaps until uh, relatively recently, perhaps to some extent with the Reformation. Plato's idea that there is a transcendent source of everything, which even in one place he refers to as, as the father, which uh, you know, is an interesting uh, idea. Gosh, I didn't um, know that. Hmm. Yes, in the Timaeus, which also has this image of the... Of this creation of the world uh, after the the great eternal exemplars so the idea that there is a transcendent source to everything and that the world is a sort of a fire with all these uh, splendid qualities beauty goodness truth and so on that uh, are refractions or sort of finite reflections um, of this sort of plenitudinous source These these are all ideas that the Platonic tradition was working with, and which clearly Christianity thought it uh, had a um, an important ally, an interlocutor there, because these are very you know these are natural ideas too for the Christian talking about uh, all of this in terms of of creation. So, um, on the one hand, it's about just recognizing a sort of kinship. So, when people came across the writings of Plato, they um, sometimes thought that he'd He'd copied uh the old testament that he was sort of <laughs> cribbing from uh cribbing from moses uh, so sometimes it's the sense of uh of here's a tradition that's been a fellow traveler and in some cases it's been that the platonic tradition has just given useful ideas philosophical categories uh in order to work with and it's also been something to push back against so i'm, I'm sure we'll want to talk about this uh christianity hasn't um worked with uh just accepted everything that the Platonic tradition was uh, was talking about, but has uh, usefully uh, uh, distinguished itself from it. But so sometimes it's what you um, what you agree with your friends that's that's useful, and sometimes it's where you come to a principal disagreement with your friends that you also also helps with your thinking.
2: So, what I have understood as the kind of the core Platonic idea that we're dealing with here really is that there is this transcendent or ultimate source, which is the most real or the fullest realization of being and then everything else in created or material reality is a reflection uh, of that ultimate source and participates in it to some extent would that be a kind of fair characterization That's, you
0: put it more beautifully and succinctly than i could and i suppose <laughs> an important part of all of this is this note of realism yeah so that they're these ideas of of goodness of truth that they're not just human projections onto the world but they're Grounded well, grounded in the first place by the reality of the things we're talking about in the world, and yet more ultimately grounded in God, the source. So this idea of a of a realism rather than you might say a relativism, is an important aspect of this legacy. Although there's also a strong interest in in mediation and the idea that things things appear in their own form. So it's not as if you need to bracket out culture and history and language and all of these things as if they're just a sort of secondary obfuscation because what you're really interested in is the thing that they're that they're imaging because i think this is a very uh, important part of a, of a christian outlook on all of this is that the way in which the ultimate uh, truths appear the way in which god makes them the materiality the time boundness of it the bodilyness, the communal aspect the culture these are part of God's good gift to us. And so then these are, I think, well, this is a good topic for us to talk about. Rather than these being somehow things you have to peel away to get to the ultimate, this is actually the arena uh, in which we encounter the the, the true and the good and the beautiful.
1: You've made Christian Platonism sound um, relatively straightforward and like the obvious option. But of course, um, I think we all know it's has been relatively controversial in the past and especially one of the criticisms against Christian Platonism has been this idea that it's actually inhibited the progress of science because it sort of placed the created world in various fixed categories that didn't allow for scientific discovery or investigation. Is that a fair characterization of the criticism?
0: There has been an argument that this uh, um, is quite intellectualist. And you know, you could just uh, close your eyes and um and think about truths, and you wouldn't have to necessarily be involved with the uh, with the empirical. And you needed to get beyond that uh, in order to be encouraged to do uh, experiments. Well, I think Peter Harrison's work here is interesting, and he has um criticized that interpretation and said that there are other things going on that represent theological uh, impetus for the for the birth of early modern science. I think it's also important to say, that it's not like there was no science until the eclipse of Platonism in the, in in as much as that happened, you know, in the, in the, in the 15th and 16th centuries. And a great uh, hero of mine would be Albert the Great, um, Aquinas' teacher. um, Who is in some, some ways, even more kind of, Headily, intoxicatingly, Platonist than his great pupil, and yet is the great scientist. I mean, there are many great scientists of the Middle Ages, but I have a, on my shelf behind me a, two enormous volumes of his work on on animals, uh, and I, I was it's a wonderful book to read. It's also just a terrific prop. Because you could really do some a lot of damage by dro- dropping these books on their heads, uh, and if you just you just slam them down on the desk, you can say, "Well, okay, so there wasn't any science in the Middle Ages." Here's Albert the Great, who's so interested in the natural world that he wrote three books on animals, minerals, and vegetables, uh, plant life, in which he he brought together. Uh, all the knowledge that he could, including uh, I wouldn't say experiment. Uh, experiment perhaps comes later. There's maybe a little bit of that, but very close um, observation. So I think you get that. That does put the the lie to the idea that Platonism would uh, argue against observation of the world, because though it, it tended to sort of enchant the world. And um, so Abbe Sujet, for instance, who was uh, uh, abbot at Saint Denis in in Paris. Um, who writes beautifully about nature, exactly from this kind of tradition, that he would just want to go out into the forests um, and encounter this uh, beautiful, splendid, sort of characterful world that he's that spoke to him uh, of, of the creator.
1: Many Christians I know would be suspicious of the idea of Christian Platonism just because it seems to imply a sort of syncretism or mixing two different ways of looking at the world and surely if you're a christian it's better to be just a christian and not be a christian and anything else so how would you respond to that idea i'm going to be
0: quite critical of that i think there's a real danger when someone says ah you're an anglican and you're a roman catholic and you're a baptist but i'm none of those things i'm just a christian for instance yes or you're a Christian Platonist or you're a Christian Hegelian or you're a Christian Aristotelian, I'm just a Christian, that this is not... Well, the the danger here is that there's a lack of self-knowledge and self-examination. So we all inhabit intellectual traditions and we want to inhabit them in a Christian way. But by not owning up to the historical lineage or lineages more often that, that you stand in, This doesn't, I think, mean that we are more purely Christian, but often in danger of being even more hijacked by the philosophical tradition that we belong to because we just don't recognise it or own up to it. So I think a really important part of when Paul says take every thought captive is is to excavate your intellectual landscape, understand what concepts you're using, understand where they're coming from, And then you can hold them up in a theological way and try and criticize them and, you know, and so on. But if the unexamined intellectual landscape is going to be the one that shapes how we think even more because we're not even aware of the way in which it's shaping us. So this idea that we kind of just can teleport out of an intellectual structure or lineage seems to me just, I'm afraid, quite naive.
1: Yeah, I think my way of putting it would just be to say there's lots of different ways of being a Christian. And if you think that your way of being a Christian is the only way, then it just means you're not aware of the choices that people before you have made about what it means to be a Christian that you've just sort of imbibed without realising it. So my
0: attitude towards this has sometimes been criticised as being too Christian, sort of too totalizingly Christian. So there was a review of, um, of the participation book uh, in the TLS, I think, where you know, one criticism was, she generally liked the book, but that I gave a, a Christian account of why I thought one could do business with Aristotle, with Plato. And I, I haven't got the review in front of me, but I seem to remember that you know, she didn't particularly like the way in which I was trying to validate these thinkers from a Christian perspective. But yeah. I think one is going to assess uh, people from a, from a Christian perspective or whatever perspective that you... Um, that you come from.
1: I guess the question is not whether or not one assesses Plato, but or, 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 or from a Christian perspective. But if you take a Christian perspective, you're going to agree with some of Plato and disagree with some of Plato. And the bits that you agree with doesn't mean that y- your Christianity is being hijacked by some foreign philosophy.
0: No, and I've wanted to stress in this uh, interview the ways in which Christianity has been critical of various aspects of Platonism so the idea that matter is senseless and chaotic and even somewhat evil or that God didn't create it or people Christians have obviously rejected the idea of some sort of realm of exemplars that is outside of God so this Plato's realm of the forms uh, Christians alongside actually some uh, some developing uh, traditions of, of Platonism came to see these as being ideas in the mind of God. So yes. there are all sorts of ways in which this has been criticised or developed or taken on. I suppose there is the p- the big question of uh, whether you think that of all the ancient traditions, there is just something really very special about the Platonic lineage. Um, and to be honest, Christian writers have had no trouble at all in saying that of all the pagan traditions, this was the one that God was most uh, directing and inspiring and, and preparing to be a, an interlocutor. Some people won't like to say that for all sorts of reasons, but uh, that certainly has been part of the tradition.
1: Already in the ancient world,
0: you've got non-Christians, non-Jews, non-Muslims who are are trying to integrate Aristotle and and Plato. But it's been a great project for the Abrahamic faiths to to sort of take the best of both of these and and see the way in which they illuminate one another.
1: And I guess that's what you would want to do with any philosophy, really, or with any philosopher. You'd want not just to reject them out of hand, but to look at them, to learn about them and to find out. Um, how far Christianity is compatible with these ideas and can take some of these ideas on board and be enriched by them. But there is another more specific criticism about Christian Platonism, uh, which I- is most famous. It's called the Hellenization Thesis, which I know you know about. And this, this Hellenization Thesis suggests that actually it was a mistake for early Christianity to in, to sort of engage with Plato and that really, Platonism was a sort of Trojan horse of a sort of foreign insertion. Insertion, And what we really need to do now is get back to the sort of pure Hebrew essence of Christianity and, and ditch all of that um, sort of Platonic influence thought. Do you have anything to say to that?
0: Well, there's a wonderful discussion of this by um, is it Robert Wilkin in the spirit of early Christian thought. Oh, Robert, Lewis this. Wilkin, yeah. Robert, L- Robert Lewis Wilkin, yeah. Uh, Robert Lewis Wilkin. I can't do it uh, anything like as well as he does, and I recommend that uh, chapter. So one thing that I would say is, by the time you get to the New Testament, it's way too late to entertain that kind of uh, approach to things. So we can talk about the Hebrew scriptures in a moment, but the New Testament is shot through with creative use of the intellectual perspectives uh, in which the the writers find themselves. So the idea that there's a a pre-Hellenistic, pre-philosophical tradition that you could turn back to in the New Testament just seems to me completely wrong. Um, It's also perhaps a little bit uh, disparaging of Hebrew thought to cast it as being somehow unphilosophical. And there's some really good work in the last couple of decades talking about the hebrew scriptures as a philosophical endeavor yes um, but that, that's that's a, that's a um, slightly different um, question and then the other thing i'd say is this really is not an a matter of people just taking things on board you know hook line and, and sinker so everything that the christian theologians touched i think they also transformed so for me i, I wrote a I wrote an introduction to philosophy for theologians where I think I um discuss this more more coherently than I am doing uh, today uh, but I do come down to this idea of you know what bends what out of shape so the hellenization thesis is that this greek philosophy bends christianity out of shape and my response is to say that doesn't do credit to all the ways in which the theological use bends the philosophy into new shapes so there's an example I talk about there about the the way in which substance means two different things, but always one of two different things in, in ancient uh, Greek thought. And the Christian tradition comes to use it in a new way. So they've bent it out of shape. I also think that we just don't need to suppose that every idea that doesn't come directly from Holy Writ is somehow perverse and wrong and misshapen. Plato, Aristotle, these other people they looked at the world they were they had they looked at the world of thinking in good faith uh with great clarity and they have things to say and why should the christian feel that that is automatically going to be something that bends things you know out of shape why can't it be that there are um, Well, just true things said there are there 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 are eloquent things said about true things by other people I, again from a kind of participatory point of view i just mm-hmm. think god is the truth behind all truth and the and i'm a realist i think that 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 there's a truth to the world and there's a truth to our speech when it lines up with the world and that by attending to the world you can get some insight into that it seems really important from a christian perspective for me to to uphold something like that kind of um metaphysical epistemological realism and so i just don't feel like there's this there's just there is i don't feel like there's a domain outside god's world that somehow Uh, you know i'm not saying that sin isn't important and so on and that there is evil and so on but i just don't think that anything is alien to god or god is alien to anything
1: Uh, yeah yeah even the most evil thing is still a perversion of something good and has some goodness right at its root as it were
0: well there's a whole strand of participatory thinking about evil which is about evil as privation yeah um, which is well worth exploring
2: So I think one of the important themes here that we might need to delve a little bit more deeply into, or one of the important concepts, is this notion of participation. And I think that's one of the things that feeds into the role of the natural world and the relationship between the natural world and the divine. So could you just say a bit more about what participation is in Platonism and specifically Christian Platonism?
0: Um, I I do think it's important to uh, emphasize that this is you know, thoroughly Christian stuff you know, written by um, many of the, the pivotal uh, writers of, of Christian history. So it's not like we're playing second fiddle here to something that's um, coming from outside. And in fact, it's more, I would say, that Christianity, perhaps alongside some forms of uh, Islam, become just the way in which these ideas and these dialogues from the ancient world uh carry on in living form into the in, into the present day so i'm not um I, do, I don't feel like we're um bearing as it were a treasure here from from some other source as if you know that was just uh uh, uh and, and we weren't we were no more than the wooden casket or something like that i feel like uh, uh, christianity has made these ideas um its own and absolutely at the heart of it is this idea of uh, participation which um which I wrote a book about and um I thought it was such a such an important idea, I couldn't possibly write a book about it. That was for uh, people who were um, more able than I was. But then I thought, well, no one else is doing it, so um, I'll, uh, I'll give it a go. And it was supposed to be very short and it ended up being um, quite long. But it's the thing that I'm most pleased with and the thing that I can go to my grave, I think, uh, thinking that I've sort of paid my, oh, it's, uh, paid my debt. It's <laughs> a
1: wonderful book. I read a, 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 an early draft in its shorter form and it, it, I found it very transformative and formative for me.
0: Um, so it's basically this idea of of reception and gift and and donation and uh it's really an exploration of what does it mean for everything about everything to come from god um including the the materiality of things the existence of things the characterfulness of things also for for things to come from god in such a way that they point back to god and they have god as their fulfillment and end and i uh show I hope I think that this has been historically an absolutely vital category in all sorts of areas of, of Christian theology certainly the doctrine of creation but also so much Christology has been about the idea of God sharing in what we are that we can share in what God is and uh, the theories of the atonement have been worked out in these ways eschatology about um, us uh, sharing in the the vision of God so it's really simple uh, it's just it's this idea of what does it mean for something to be what it is through uh, reception from another and it ends up also in right the right way through ethics um, epistemology and how we know and know things for instance and i think if the book achieves one thing it's that it takes what have been quite disparate discussions and tries to weave them together and see the common ground
2: So you mentioned there when you were explaining participation that an aspect of this is viewing creation as a gift. I wondered if you might want to say a bit more about that um, and why that seems like a more distinctively platonic or Christian platonic idea than uh, other Christian understandings of the role of the natural world and whether or not it's a gift.
0: Well I think this is a good example of how it's possible for the idea of Christian Platonism to be asked to do too much work, as if this was something uh, very distinct and odd and, you know, that it's like a river that can be put into very uh, narrow banks and the rest of the terrain uh, wouldn't be this. But this is it's difficult to think of much Christian theology that wouldn't want to understand the world as a, as a gift. Yeah. Um, and on this, this is also a point in which perhaps um, Christianity has, has worked with these Ideas and dialogue with Platonic sources, and also uh, pushed back a bit. So um, there's this model of, um, which you find in, in Plato himself, of of order and and characterfulness and the natures of things being imprinted into a primordial senseless matter, and the matter always exists over and alongside the. The ultimate source. And Christianity has very much said no here alongside Islam and, and Judaism, that everything about everything, including matter, is God's creation and God's gift to us. So, in that sense, it's sort of pushing the derivedness of everything even further than than Plato would. And it's also the, this idea of gift has generally been thought to be a free gift, that's something that God didn't have to do. And uh, again, this is pushing against some uh, pagan uh, forms of, of uh, Platonism. So Plotinus probably, I know this is actually quite disputed, but uh, traditionally people have thought that Pl- Plotinus is uh, the one and the, the good, the ultimate uh, source of things, just kind of overflows with creation. Naturally, and may not even be aware of it. Uh, it's not a, a willed choice. And here Christianity takes a step away from that and says, no it's not just some sort of automatic overflow creation is god's uh, choice and that makes it gratuitous uh, and a gift so those things that that where christianity has um, distinguished itself from uh, platonism are also pretty important but that's not as if it's been turning its back on on this idea it's it's a, just a sort of a richer exploration of uh, of where to be um, and i certainly feel Uh, if I might speak uh, now almost in the register of of spirituality as much as uh, theology that the idea of the world as a gift lies pretty close to the heart of my Christian faith so I there's a a lovely passage in Chesterton somewhere where he says he just can't get away from apprehending the world as a gift and he and he thinks that a gift implies a giver and um, I think you know strip things back and um, that uh, is pretty close I think to the of my own religious outlook
2: it seems to me to be a much more positive and hopeful and respectful way of viewing the world than for example the the dominion view of the world that you might get from some readings of genesis instead it's saying it seems to be saying that we have been given this gift of which we are very much part and we have a perhaps you can get from that we have a responsibility to look after it rather than to subdue it and keep and, uh, exploit it for our own gains and seeing it as a, as a means to our own ends rather than an end in and of itself to be cherished and enjoyed and uh, lived in.
0: Mm. Well, I think this really brings us to an interesting point about different ways of inhabiting these ideas. And I think there are people who want to uh, defend a kind of pristine christian platonism that's good and only good or platonism that's good and only good and i'm less uh, invested in that i think all of our intellectual traditions are at least something of a mixed bag and also you know multiplicitous and we're going to find different approaches so it seems to me uh, to say two things here one is we're going to be able to tease apart different threads within this broad Uh, Strand, and I think some of them will align more with dominion, and some more with a more creative and responsible attitude, and 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 I'll come back to that. Um, And the second is that because this is multiple and contested and moving, I think it's also a creative business. So I think that theology this is very much a historically resourced theology. I'm going to be you know I read Aquinas pretty much every day, for instance, but I. Think it's also a task of the 21st century and precisely because all these ideas give birth to different outcomes different outlooks it's our responsibility now not just to receive but to make something of them and to to, to inhabit them in a creative kind of way so you will definitely find people writers who think that the human being has an absolutely privileged and distinct form of imaging god and participating in god i think actually it, 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 for me that is probably the default christian attitude and i would say that the way in which human beings perhaps angels perhaps if there are other intelligent uh species elsewhere in the universe they do image god in a remarkable way because of memory intellect will freedom moral responsibility i still stand uh on the i guess in- increasingly uh uh, controversial ground of saying that, that just distingu- distinguishes from uh, most uh, other creatures. Now, I don't feel like I'm, I would be threatened if it turns out there were other things that have those qualities. I don't think it's a competitive thing, but I, I do think that the the imaging of God is to be found in a really remarkable way um, in the the human being. But then we need to you know, and, uh, see how to understand that, um, and I guess it you know everything in theology comes back to God. And uh, we look to the one whose image we bear and we see uh, compassion and mercy and creativity and God who wishes things to be and delights in them. And this is not, it seems to me, an image that we bear that should lead to destruction and greed and carelessness um, and those sorts of things. Um, Jacob Sherman, who's a wonderful writer on participation, has pointed to various different stages in which how the idea developed. And um, he, in what he thinks of as the, the final stage, he talks about the idea of us uh, participating uh, not just by what we are and that we are, but also what we do. Um, mm. And so that's where this ethics
1: is, comes in, I guess. This is
0: where ethics comes in and also biblical studies. So there's a, a very um, a popular reading of the image uh, of God uh, in, uh, in Genesis nowadays that talks about it in quite, in quite regal terms that the uh you might have a, a sort of an overlord that, whose empire would was, was uh, spread over uh, a large swathe and then there will be local rulers who uh, answered to that uh overlord but had autonomy um, and freedom and uh, responsibility within their area and they were described as the image of the more ultimate ruler and so, and they had the responsibility to govern and look after what had been entrusted to them. And so it's interesting that we get the idea of the image in Genesis and in the very next verse, the idea of, of having this responsibility for the area, mm. uh, for, the, for the locality. Um, and this would be like being a viceroy or, a, or a, you know, someone who uh, has responsibility uh, under God for, you know, for, for the domain around them. And here we need to look to the wider resources of, of Christian theology for what that's going to mean, and I think it's going to mean responsibility, care. This this seems to me not not alien to the to this image. If uh, if you were given some um, something to look after, and then you you trashed it, this is not being a responsible custodian of that which is given to you.
1: Mm. No. So there's a number of things that this whole idea of participation and and Christian Platonism, there's a number of ways that that discourse touches on themes in science. One of the other ones is uh, participation. It sort of challenges any way of doing science that sees a sort of God of the gaps, a sort of tries to look for God in the places where science hasn't yet got an explanation for things. So would you, would you say that participation is helpful when talking about the God of the gaps? I
0: think that's a, a very important point and very much worth talking about. And I can even uh, put this in context a little bit in terms of my own biography. So mm. I went up to university to study chemistry uh, from quite a conservative house church background i'd grown up in the church of england but i'd left that behind thinking the world was made in six days uh six thousand years ago and coming to you know study science and realizing that the evidence is against that and really the, it felt like the bottom fell out of my my faith and my world really i had the, such a you know, long crisis of faith and two things i think reshaped my faith and, and outlook and one was the college chapel that i uh, worshipped in which was the the form of the worship it wasn't about how we felt it was it was all very kind of objective and it was about Mm. god's glory and splendor and so on that was very important but the other thing um was coming across dominicans basically and the writings of aquinas and it was always this participatory side of aquinas's writing that um impressed me and realizing that these people would have taken all of this in their stride. They would have been fascinated. There was not really anything that was being thrown at me by science and um, by atheist critics and so on. Or oh, specifically um, evolutionary as, as theory. Uh, and, and uh, I mean, obviously Aquinas uh, doesn't know about evolution, although you, you just get the impression that he would be absolutely fascinated by it and delighted by it, and that his intellectual system is big enough to be able to to take it into account in fact i've written a rather christian platonist sort of study of uh the idea of the, the mutability of species and how well i think it all, all fits um rather nicely and so i think that this you know to go back to this idea of participation being exp- the exploration of how everything about everything comes from god then it is absolutely an outlook that is not going to feel like you need to carve out special places for god to dwell in because god is going to be in everything and behind everything. And in fact, I am by outlook because of this really quite suspicious of anything that looks like you're saying, ah, science stops here and God's got to take over. So I I think intelligent design, for instance, would be an example of that. Mm. And I would much rather give God the credit for creating a world in which everything proceeds and uh, has these capacities rather than one that sort of makes a, a half-hearted job of it and God needs to keep coming in and uh, you know pushing things forward and, and 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 plugging the gaps. So sort of epistemologically and, and in terms of faith, I am not at all enthusiastic about uh, God of the gaps kind of apologetics where you say, well, there must be a God because this thing in science can't be explained because I just think we're, we're setting ourselves up for a, a fall there when the science can explain it. But also just theologically, um, I think of God acting in all action, God being the one who gives all things their natures and, and, and the actions that, that follow from that. Um, and that just isn't, this is another important point I think, just isn't in competition with God. So there's this, I think, helpful distinction that's made between primary and secondary causes, that uh, God is the, the, the first cause of all things, and creatures have their absolutely their own proper causality derived from the great gift of being from god and one of the things that i think this tradition is so helpful for is saying that god is so transcendent as to be not in competition with things and therefore also perfectly imminent to things so uh, it's only when things are actually quite like one another that they're in competition with one another so an apple can't be an orange because they're both kinds of fruit they kind of exclude one another within the realm of fruit but yeah uh, a you know, piece of paper can be a declaration of love precisely because they're so completely different um and and so it's the the absolutely unspeakable difference of god of god from the world and the world from god that undergirds the intimacy of god's relation to things and the fact that there isn't a competition between divine causes and creaturely causes that's quite a lot to say, in one, almost in one breath. But um, yeah. I, I think it, this is all very relevant for this uh, question of, of getting away from a God of the gaps.
1: Yeah, and also from the idea of God as sort of having to intervene in the world as if the world carried on normally without God being present to it. Is there anything more that you might want to say about that? Um, well, I've got a chapter coming out in the, in the forthcoming
0: Oxford History... Uh, no, sorry, Oxford Handbook of Creation... In the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Creation, uh, on exactly this point on divine action, and saying that um, for me the idea of intervention just gets it gets it wrong really from the beginning. Uh, I think of you know Tony Blair intervening in Kosovo or something like that. You know <laughs> that that to intervene you have to be basically an agent amongst agents, a thing amongst things. And you have to be not just, there already, yeah, not there already, but just kind of just over the border. Yeah. Um, but that's just exactly i think not how christian theology has talked about god both because god's not a thing amongst things and because god's always there already and like augustine says closer to me than i am to myself and the one who whose gift means that things are what they are and causes they do um without god having to somehow sort of parachute in
1: so you've also been working a little bit on evolution and the n- recent developments in evolutionary thought and what Theology might have to uh, offer to that, or how theology might contribute to that. Is that right?
0: I have. So we live in an extraordinary time for the theory of evolution. I mean, not that Darwin's great insight uh, is up is up for grabs or in jeopardy, but there's seems to be more movement, more new insights, more sort of th- three dimensional vision of what evolution might be in the last couple of decades. Uh, so in the twentieth century. We get this idea of the modern synthesis which brings darwin's insights and population thinking and then all those fruits of molecular biology so just around the corner from where i'm speaking the structure of dna was uh, uncovered uh, and that you know opened this extraordinary biochemical understanding of of genetics and that led to uh, this thing the modern synthesis middle of the 20th century and it was very confident and it was quite kind of compressed and crystalline. You could write it down the back of a, of a of, a, of an envelope. These were the, hmm. the main uh, principles, and it was very very gene focused. And I think what's particularly noticeable about the ways in which evolutionary thought seems to be sort of unfurling, or um, I'm trying to think of the right metaphor, just that it's a, a richer, more complex picture than the modern synthesis. Uh, would would give it credit for so uh, a a real shift in all of this towards understanding organisms and not just genes the organism at the center of um, evolutionary thought and the organism in relation to its environment so if you want to read about this there's a terrific book uh, by Sonia Sultan called Organism and Environment which just is a tour de force of this and also the other organisms as part of the environment so that's something else that I'm interested in, these patterns of cooperation as well as competition between different uh, organisms. So um, I'll give you a couple of really good examples of, of, of uh, ways in which evolutionary thought is sort of being shaken up. Things that we would have thought were different species turn out to be the same species, but they grow very differently in response to different environments. You get this with certain fish in African lakes. But as okay. easy as if you if you plant honeysuckle, or holly in the middle of a field it'll grow into a bush and if you grow it up against a wall it'll grow up into a climber. Incredibly, you know, really different uh, shape of a plant but uh, growing in response to its environment. Also turns out, talking about holly, which is almost too good to be true but it seems to be seems to be right, that holly leaves at the top of a tree don't have spikes and the holly leaves at the bottom of the tree do have spikes. Why is that? Because they Grow spikes in response to being n- uh, nibbled and eaten. But they don't oh, do that wow. at the top of the tree because no one's nibbling them there. There's no point uh, wasting energy making spikes. But um, that does happen uh, where they're uh, being eaten. So that's an idea of phenotypic plasticity, that the phenotype is not is not just determined by the genes, but by the genes working in concert with the uh, and responding to the environment. So just a uh, kind of broadening out of the picture. Another important um, Uh, emphasis has been on niche construction so if there's a fit between an organism and its environment it's not just because it's evolved over thousands and thousands of years um, through its genes to fit it to that environment but there'll also be some aspect of it fitting its environment because it has itself or its predecessors adapted the environment and this turns out to be ubiquitous across life Um, of course we're great adapters But beavers, you know, build dams and completely change their geography. Um, Earthworms make soil habitable to themselves, uh, plants with roots and so on. So um, I I could give you five or so uh, examples of, I think, really fascinating uh, angles on evolution that are really of of, uh, particular interest. Uh, Today, as I say, not overthrowing the earlier theory, other than perhaps saying that some of its formulations have been a bit reductive and a bit too gene-focused. Uh, gene yeah, so
1: it sounds like um, there's a bit more fluidity to some of what you're saying, that um, species can adapt and change uh, even when they have the same genes.
0: Yeah, a sort of plasticity, a kind of openness, a kind of potential we might talk about in Aristotelian terms. And yeah. uh, also the, you know, the role of the environment, the role of community is, uh, is all uh, very important. And I had thought, right, well, I'm going to, I edited an edition of a journal on this, um, and I'll just set about trying to write a paper on each of these interesting new focuses in evolutionary thought from a from a from a theological perspective, um, because I think that there's a danger that theologians are responding to the evolutionary thought of fifty years ago, mm. and if you think about how it's mediated, it's mediated through what you get taught at school, textbooks, what's appearing on the television, and that is, and interestingly, some of the more some of the biologists who are interested in religion, but from an atheistic perspective, Richard Dawkins among them, have, have not been enthusiastic about these uh, putting emphasis on these developments in evolution. So you, you get both the critics uh, cri- uh, critics of religion and the people responding to evolution from an evolutionary perspective, um, working with evolution as it was understood you know, f- 50 years ago and in fact in a way whether even whether you're being antagonistic towards evolution which i wouldn't want to be or even people who are being um enthusiastic and wanting to, to you know, take it in their stride and think about it theologically there's still a danger that this great ferment of evolutionary thinking of the last uh, 20 or so years just maybe hasn't kind of caught up yet outside of these biological and philosophy biology areas so that i think is one of, again one of the things that are a, a theologian interested in science can do is to try to keep your eye on the ball and on what's current and recent developments and think about that from a, um, a theological perspective of course there's always a, a balance to be struck you don't want to be chasing every kind of fleeting of the moment contested uh, I- idea and, and and kind of fossilizing it or canonizing it so that it's important to um, to have some sense of, of where the 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 new centre of gravity is but I I do think that uh, especially you know I have the benefit of having had a scientific education uh, through to DPhil and um, I think one of the things that then that a responsibility that comes from that one things you can do with it is, is try and keep up to date with the with the science and help the mediate that to a theological community as I say so that one is not absolutely chasing every Every little bit of novelty, but on the other hand, not responding to the state of science as it was you know, really some decades ago as it's mediated through schools and textbooks and so on.
2: Yeah, this is something that everybody working in science and religion has to contend with. You have to work out how you can be engaging with the real frontier of science, because that's where the real, inter- really interesting questions lie. And you don't want your philosophy and theology to be lagging behind. Uh, but that, that involves a certain element of risk because you might be coming up with theological or philosophical ideas on the basis of science that's going to be overturned. And so I think that's just something that science and religion scholars have to grapple with, but it makes our field creative and dynamic and interesting because there's always new uh, experiments, new theories, new findings to be engaged with. And so as long as we can strike that balance right and we're comfortable with that level of risk, the rewards are many and uh, Mm. yeah. That's the way that I see it, at least. And it's
0: noticeable just how long sometimes it can take before other parts of the scientific community um, and the arts and humanities uh, get on board with something. And I think mutualism is a really good example of this. So it's a wonderful, wonderful collection uh, by Judith Bronstein, Bronstein, just called uh, Biological Mutualism, I think. So all about the, the role of interactions, cooperative interactions between different species in biology. And I just don't think people were writing about that very much. So, over the 20th century, and especially towards the end of the 20th century, it's a really un- uncontestable now sense that the story of biology is one of cooperation as well as competition. Um, and I hope I've done something, but again, I've edited a, convened a workshop and edited an edition of a, of a journal and write about it a bit more to try and put that dynamic in biology in front of theologians too. Uh, of course, the danger here is. And people say this to me all, all the time over uh, mutualism. Being a kind of cheery, optimistic kind of person is that you, you know, the danger of cherry picking and going after the things that that interest you or that seem more congruent with uh, with theology. And I certainly have a very cooperative, non-zero sum kind of outlook on life. I think. And and there, you just need to be clear that what you're writing about, you're not writing about the whole story, but that you're trying to recover part of a story, part of a picture that I don't think has received the attention it deserves.
2: I think that's a really great place to end, actually. We've covered a lot of fascinating (laughs) ground. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a good place to end.
1: Thank you so much for giving us your time, Andrew. Not at all. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye.